Finding God in Unexpected Places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hello, everyone, and welcome in to another edition of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. I'm Jason Elam. I'm so grateful to have you with us again this week. Hey, before we get into the episode today, I wanted to ask you to do me three quick favors, if you please. Number one, would you please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to this podcast? By hitting the subscribe button, you help us book great guests for the future. You see, often when a guest is considering coming on the podcast, they'll check out our subscriber numbers to see if it's a good use of their time. So by hitting that subscribe button, you're helping us book great guests for future episodes. Number two, if you will rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it, that helps spread the word about the Messy Spirituality Podcast and get it in front of new eyes and to new ears. Finally, I want to invite you to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Jason Elam writes. When you support us there, you help us produce the best sounding podcast that we can, but also it unlocks some rewards for you, like you'll get the episodes one week early before they're released to the general public. So you'll get exclusive early access to each and every episode just by becoming a Patreon supporter for $1 or more per month. You'll also get a free copy of my book when it releases later this year. And I'm really excited about that. And I hope you will be too. Once again, it's patreon.com slash Jason Elam writes, and I'd appreciate it so much. And now here's this week's episode. My guest today is Wendy Francisco. Wendy was born in Boston, grew up in Southern California, and graduated from San Diego State University with degrees in art and creative writing. Wendy sings, writes, plays guitar, and paints. She's illustrated books, recorded CDs, and traveled the world performing. In 2009, Wendy's first animated video, God and Dog, was posted on YouTube and received a million views in the first 40 days. Wendy resides with her husband, singer-songwriter Don Francisco, in the mountains of Colorado, and it's my pleasure to welcome her to the Messy Spirituality Podcast today. Welcome, Wendy Francisco. (laughs) Thank you, Jason. We are really excited to be talking to you today, and I'm so glad that you've made time to uh, have this conversation. Wendy, if you will, start us off by telling us about your upbringing. Were you raised to be a person of faith? My family, my mom was a Christian. It wasn't a a, a real intense situation where we went to church a lot, kind of fell into it during the Jesus movement when I was in high school and got into campus life and things like that. Okay. What was the Jesus movement like for you in high school? I didn't get involved with it until I was uh, in the last half of my senior year. And it was really a pretty wonderful time. You know, my family had uh, had some struggles going on and it was uh, a tight community of a lot of kids and a lot of activities and a pretty simple and wonderful faith thing going on with Jesus, you know, and kind of innocent, the innocent, the innocent days, I guess you'd say. I understand. Many of us have an experience maybe later in our lives where we begin to own a faith of our own. Did that happen to you? I would say so. Yeah. Much, much, much later. What was that experience like of coming to own your faith for yourself? Well, it was, it was kind of uh, a traumatic thing, you know, because being in evangelicalism a long time, you're really not allowed to kind of have your own faith. It's really depending on having the right thoughts and, you know, and the right doctrine. And so I'm really going fast forward a long way to a point of saying to myself, well, you know, a lot of the things that you believe, you were taught at a very young age, 
and maybe even indoctrinated. And you, you really haven't examined these things as an adult. And so it was, it's very painful because you have to kind of lob it all off to the ground and re-examine everything as an adult. Was there an event or a catalyst that led to that refining of your faith? I think that we all have a lot of events in life that cause us to question certain things. Maybe somebody will have something happen young. Maybe something will happen when you're older. But really, honestly, I think the main thing is that evangelicalism just basically failed. People like myself that I've talked to that have experienced this, it may be an event that brings it on. But I think actually the main thing that brings it on is your brain is always doing the math. And at some point, your brain way underneath starts going, you know, this isn't adding on very well. <laughs> and that, But you just say, oh, shut up. I, I'm an evangelical, you know. And you just then your brain gets a little louder and says, you know, this is really not adding up. And, and you just say, well, God's ways are not like our ways, you know. Because you forget that right after that it says, come learn my ways so that those ways are accessible. And finally, you get to the point where your brain is screaming, this is not only making, not making sense, it's really insane. And then you just start have to, you have to listen and you, you start putting the pieces together. Do you remember one specific belief that was the kind of the, uh, the tip of the iceberg of deconstruction for you? Yes, I think deconstruction for me was actually two part. And the first part had to do with my identity as a woman. Christianity can well, I, I don't know what to call it, honestly. Maybe it's more accurate to call it retributive religion because we really can't get too angry at Christianity until we define what it is, and that would be a whole other podcast. <laughs> so I will just say re- retributive religion, which involves a hell, is difficult on women. It's difficult on women because ultimately that that religion with that in it somewhere in its foundation is going to grow all kinds of hierarchies and gender roles. And it's going to treat you like a cog in a machine based on, you know, kind of surfacey qualities. And it's not going to acknowledge your personhood. It's, it's not going to be, you know, the scriptural concept of no Greek, no Jew, no male, no female. And see, and that's one of the things that didn't add up. It's like, how can that be true? And yet I'm such a cog. And so for the first time in my life, I opened up some books on the Greek and <laughs> I started to try to find myself in scripture. I'd never done it. I mean, and this is one of the astonishing things that I realized, gosh, you know, I am saying that I'm basing my life on a book that I have actually never even read in its original language. And I've only had People tell me what it means. And maybe one of the reasons I got here is, of course, Don and I have done gospel music and traveled all over the world. And so we've seen churches that, you know, they don't believe the same things. (laughs) If you just go to one church, you could find yourself in a box, but it's really hard to find a box when you've been all over the world. You know, so I read and what I found in scripture about women was so freeing. and so contradictory to how I had been raised in evangelicalism, I literally lobbed an English translation across the room. I was so mad. (laughs) And um, because I was, well, I thought so because I just feel like a human being. I don't feel on the deepest 
part of inside of myself, like this set of doctrines is telling me I ought to be feeling. That doesn't seem to be me. So when I read deeper in the Greek, and I'm not an expert, but I don't even think you need to be a rocket scientist, I went, okay, that's me. And furthermore, if they could do this to half the human race based on gender, I bet there's no hell. And that that led to part two <laughs> of, of what we call deconstruction. But I, I should interject here that at this point, I went to Don. Because, you know, you have to remember, at this point, we were really evangelicals. You know, and I said, I know this is going to sound weird. And if, you know, if it does turn out that I'm wrong and, you know, and I'm fated to be your love slave, <laughs> then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. But what I'm finding is that we should have an equal marriage. And, you know, you hear a lot about that these days, but back then you did not. This is like me looking into scripture, having never heard this and saying to Don, look at this scripture in the English translation and then look at this word in the Greek. And so we, we both took that journey together. And I remember him looking at me and saying, I love this is so amazing that I get to be your friend and I don't have to be your God. Ooh, wow. And we could do a whole podcast on how I think evangelicalism ruins marriages. So I won't get off on that one, but Absolutely. we have done No, but I love I love the the issue that you've raised. Can you give me an example or two of things you found in the Greek that were different than the English translations or that the evangelical church had portrayed them to be saying? Oh boy, I did this long time ago, so I'll try to figure it out. But well, I think one like in Ephesians, the famous one that talks about submission and all that. It's weird how it's tweaked. It's kind of tweaked how it's written. Like for instance, it's, it says that we should all submit to one another, but then there's a break there. I can't remember if it's a, a verse break or even a chapter break where the the discussion of women's submission is kind of elevated and, and taken out of the context of now we're believers and we're going to all submit to one another. And this is how, and it's so weird because you can look point blank at this in the English and get this thing that women are the slaves of men, you know, but then I remember reading on it said the man should love the woman as Jesus loves the church and presents her to himself. Well, that's kind of ambiguous thing. But when I looked up the, word present, I saw that it meant besides standing, you know, and, and I realized that Paul was dealing with a culture where there was stuff going on that we could probably scarcely imagine. It's kind of, we all heard about how women were cattle in so many cultures back then. What he was doing, I believe, is just saying, look, I'm not telling you to carry signs and become activists because you've discovered your freedom in Christ, but to go on submitting to each other and the man lifts the woman to equality. And the, re the reason that evangelicalism is so blind to the marriage, this equality in marriage, is that, that we weren't seeing that Christ is saying, I didn't come to call you slaves, but friends. So we don't get this concept on either end of this. This parable, this illustration, we don't get it <laughs> on either side. We don't get that Jesus wants us as friends and not slaves. So we can't see it in marriage either. That's kind of one example of many that I found. And that's certainly a game changer. And I'm sure it, it changed your relationship. But with you and your husband being so, so much a part of evangelical culture and kind of caught up in the machine of evangelicalism, how hard was it to say some of these things that you were finding at that time? Oh, I love your question because 
I started something way back. We had a site that that was really popular before social media, and it was just DonFrancisco.com. And we had a section on there called the Mythbusters. And I would just write little myths, you know, busting these things, you know, not just the thing with women, but all kinds of things. And I was so terrified to put my name on them that I never did. I never signed them. And I knew people would assume Don wrote them, but I didn't care because (laughs) I just wanted people to read it. And back then I was, you know, because of where I came out of, if you put a woman's name on something like that, right there, no, nobody that needed to read it would read it. (laughs) So I never Mm -hmm. saw, I was so scared. It was just, oh, I was just terrified. And oh my gosh, Jason, it just amazes me every day what a boiled frog I was, and we all were, in terms of how much pressure we have not to speak. Oh, my gosh. We we were so oppressed, you know. There are so many things we couldn't speak about. So did you do you feel like those fears were realized? Did you get a lot of pushback and a lot of hate in response to you sharing those thoughts? Or was it easier than you expected in the aftermath? Well, see, I'm almost 64, so it depends on what decade you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, we've only been been married for going on 24 years, but in the span of 24 years, the, the dialogue has really, really changed. And I, I think that I would say that if, during the time that I was challenging people, I mean, we didn't get a lot of pushback because there was no social media. There wasn't any way they could really push back. I mean, occasionally you get a really nasty email. Or you might have somebody cancel a concert. I had that happen. But it, it it wasn't like what happened to us on social media when we let people know that we were inclusion. You know, then, oh my goodness, it was bad. <laughs> it was a slaughter out. So when did that happen? When did you come out in favor of inclusion? So inclusion grew within Dawn and my dialogue for many, many years. But there there actually was an event that changed things. And what happened was my brother, who was an atheist and one of my closest friends in my entire life in the whole world, was living with us at this time. And he had a heart attack and died. So very, very traumatic and very difficult. And during that time, a couple of amazing things happened. And and I I guess I felt an assurance from God about my brother, of course, I was already inclusion, so I was not worried about where, quote, where my brother wind up, you know, it just never even crossed my mind to worry about it. I had personally enough years of inclusion to just feel completely confident in the character of God and how he doesn't abuse people <laughs> to know where my brother was. But I couldn't believe the emails I, and PMs and things on Facebook that I was getting that my brother was in hell. And I got one PM that said, your brother's in hell. And if you weren't so lazy, he would be going to heaven. And maybe now you'll learn your lesson and you'll get out there and make converts. You know, and I just looked at that and I, something happened to me. You remember that old commercial where the lady falls down and can't get, can't get up. And she says, I've fallen and I can't get up. And when this happened to me, it's like, I'm talking and I can't shut up (laughs) and I don't care what happens and I don't care who thinks what, but this is insane and it's sick and people are in bondage to it. And, and when we, when we preach hell, we're putting ourselves in it. It's, 
it's the hole that we dig for others and fall into. It is crazy making. It kills our empathy. There is no way as just a person with basic sanity that I could continue to live on this earth thinking that my brother was in hell. So when when you began to def- to defy the conventional notions of hell, when you began to speak out about that, what would you say? I think at first I just described some of the ways in which God had assured me that that uh, that that was not his fate. But then I realized that so much of evangelicalism is a, is against us receiving any kind of personal assurances from God. This is, sounds funny, but and I I don't mean for it to be. Evangelicalism tells us that we can have a personal relationship with God. And then it tells us that pretty much anything we hear is from the devil, you know, and that this is one of the, the main confusing things about evangelicalism. It's almost like dead religion is afraid of actually connecting us to God because then we become whole people that do not need a hierarchical religious power in order to survive. Does that make sense? It's, and so <clears throat> our religions are built on fear and neediness. They are not built on whole contributing, freely con- you know, contributing people. We are enslaved by our dead religions and made to be needy. It's a problem getting out of that and then trying to communicate back into it. And so I just kind of turned to scripture because in the same way you can, you can use scripture to knock down dead religion. If you're, if you're kind of good at it, you know, and you can go to the places where it has alternative stories about women. And likewise, you can, you can look in scripture and say, well, you know, if you're going to be a literalist and you, you're going to pull hell out of, scripture, you're going to have to deal with the fact that there is no Greek word for hell. And at every place in the New Testament that you see the word hell in, you know, of course, the translations are different. So some will use Sheol, which is the literal truth, which of course is not hell, but there are four different words in the New Testament and they all mean different things. You're talking about Gehenna and Sheol and Hades, is that right? Yeah, these are all different things with rich meanings. But our picture of hell looks more like Dante's Inferno, you know, a hot place where people go and get burned up for an eternity. Right. And it doesn't exist. It wasn't taught in the Old Testament. I mean, you have to tweak the scriptures to get hell, as we think of it, out of the scriptures. So. It, you know, it's it becomes so so crazy making and ironic because you know people will say, "Well, hell is all over the Bible," and uh, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven, which is so untrue. Jesus never ever mentions hell as we think of it. He most of the places where we see him utter the word hell, it's Gehenna. So he's talking to the Jews about a place that is uh, it's a garden out these days it's a garden outside of Jerusalem in those days they burned their trash and and it, and it had terrible dark things in history that happened there and it's metaphorically very rich but as as bad as it is you know 
It's not our Western Dante hell. It's not that. My problem with, with telling people these things is that I'm not a Greek expert or a Bible expert by, by any means. I think that we have study guides available that make it so that we don't have to be rocket scientists to find out very basic things. But, you know, I was very aware that I'm a woman and that I'm not, you know, I don't have a doctorate, <laughs> you know, but I just, I just had to start talking anyway and hope that some people won't understand why I just couldn't accept it. <laughs> you know, and all the evangelical voices ring in your ears, like this saying that you hear over and over go, never let a tragedy change your doctrine. Oh man, that was such a big evangelical one. It's just amazing that that's not in the Bible. It's like when when you go through things, that's how you learn. That is when your theology can fail. Well, how about that? This tragedy makes me want to have more compassion and a bigger concept of God's love. It attributes more power to the cross because the cross actually finished it. So, it, you know, I just figure if my choice is, if I, if I stay with the evangelical stuff, I have to be less loving and see a less loving God or, or go with what I think might be a different picture. It means God is more loving, more powerful. <laughs> you know, I, I think I'm going to get yelled at and go with the like bigger love thing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So how do you respond today when somebody, I, I saw just the other day that, that John Piper was on uh, Twitter talking about when God sends people to hell or when he gives them diseases, that he's doing that out of love. It's because he is loving that he disciplines. How do you respond to somebody like that? Oh, I, I just think that's the fear package. It terrifies people to make us think that we... See, I my feeling is that we are absolutely finished works. God isn't in the business of molding us at all. He loves us. I mean, you have to think of it this way. Let's say you have a 30-year-old son and you decide to mold him. What is your 30-year-old son going to do? It's, he's probably going to move as far away from you as he can get, and then he's going to block you off Facebook. <laughs> and we have this very flawed view of ourselves in Christ where we are per perpetual toddlers. That's right. <laughs> you know, And what it means to grow up is to stand beside Jesus, beside standing. Remember that thing? Beside standing is what the word present means. Jesus presented himself a bride. He set us beside him. He wants to call us friend, not slave. You know, the greatest in heaven serves. He doesn't rule, you know. And so this is, is a whole different foundation than what evangelicalism is built on. So much of that seems to be built on fear, but, but we've come to realize that perfect love casts out fear. Because of God's love, we really have nothing to be afraid of. A lot of the evangelical leaders that are listened to the most are the most toxic and are, are literally just paralyzing people with fear because we feel like we stand before a perfect God, except that our, our concept of perfect, it doesn't have anything to do with this love. It has to do with this morality. And that's, that's wrong. That's eating from that tree that we're not supposed to eat from. We're like gorging on it, you know, and this is how we see God. And that's not who he is. Mm -hmm. It's his love that's perfect. Being a moral person means being forgiving. And so we stand terrified before this God 
And we think that his this earthly life is, is him molding us. It's not. It's so wonderful to just get rid of all that. That S-H dot dot dot. <laughs> it is. You're right. It was a real game changer for me to start to think of holiness. You know, it, we, we hear that God is holy and we think that he's some, you know, moral rule keeper, but obviously, you know, he, he makes the rules, he doesn't follow them. So that couldn't be it. That couldn't be what holiness was. And so it just occurred to me one day that maybe holiness is being set apart entirely for love. And I believe that's who God is. And maybe that's who we are. Maybe we're to be set apart for love. Yeah, I've always wondered about the whole set apart thing. And one of, one of the things that helped, that really helps me with that as far as coming out of the world you know, and all that, we have to realize that back then the world was religion. There, there was no such thing as atheism in the, I mean, to be set apart was to come out of retributive religion. It was everywhere, whether it was Jews killing lambs to appease God or the pagan religions that killed their children to appease God. And we have been operating with a theory of atonement, this theory of atonement. We think Jesus is the ultimate satisfaction for a pagan God, you know, that our God needs a blood sacrifice. So he sent his son. It's just rebuilding Judaism. It's rebuilding what Jesus came to tear down. What I think is that any religion with a hell God underneath it (laughs) is going to pull these corrupted things out of humanity. So we've talked about what God isn't like. In your understanding today, what is God like? I think that my confidence about things is a little bit more shaky when I look at the future than it is when I look at the past. And when I think about what God is like, then what I want to do is just go to the simplest scriptures that have always been right in front of our nose, but We just haven't been able to see them. If I slap God on one cheek, he's going to turn the other. If I steal God's coat, I'm going to get his shirt too. If I kill God, he's going to forgive me and then raise him the dead to show me that he's bigger than death. And I think that what we thought Jesus was doing was laying out a morality for us. But I think what he was doing was describing God, that hell is based on an eye for an eye. It's based on the need for sacrifice. The whole doctrine of hell, it is an outworking of who we think God is and how he uses his power and what God's value system is. If we believe in hell, we actually believe, and at some point our brain is going to do this math and going, hey, you know, it's going to go, hey, dope, look what you believe. We believe, if we believe in hell, that, that morality is more important to God. A moral code is more important to God than living people. And I think that the message that Jesus came to bring to us, to show us, is that God loves people and he's not judging us on a moral scale at all. He is trying to reveal the kingdom to us, to free us from being bound into religion. And see, if God comes here as a man and we kill him and on his dying lips, he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he raises from the dead. The power of sin is broken. You, you don't need any woo-woo things. If that does it. That's all you need. Well, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do to offend this God. And what, what's beautiful about this is that suddenly you're free. 
And any act of love that comes out of you after that is a gift that you are free and clear as a sentient being who owns him or herself to give. It is not, it is not a tuck-tailed offering to an angry God. It's not performance. It's not done out of fear. You're free and you can co-create now because there's simply nothing that you owe this God. Just changes everything. It really does. What role, if any, does Jesus play in your life today? At first, when I deconstructed, I had to deconstruct Jesus too, and it was so painful. But I had to admit that he was among the things that got indoctrinated into me. And how on earth do I know that guy even lived? I'm no historian. And and I, it was really painful, and I felt so lost, and I really did take it down to the root. You know, we all pretty much know that Jesus probably lived and was a historical figure. But this idea of divinity and stuff, you know, how can you know that? That's how far I went down to the bottom. And it was it was a very difficult thing to do to basically you're, you're just taking knacks to your whole life and your personhood and everything you've stood on and built on. And you're going to say, here I go. Let's see what survives. You know, and this is the part that I know would really freak out non-evangelicals. But during that time, I read some Native American philosophy and it was amazing the effect it had on me. And, and I'm sure that some of Native American philosophy, maybe I wouldn't agree with it, but the stuff that I read was so founded on it, on goodness, you know, and there were healings and miracles there. And there were shaman teachers say, you know, telling us that you never use power for yourself, but only for the good of others. And they, and it just went on and on. It was a whole set of myths and story that did not include Jesus and did not include and could not include any aspect of Judeo-Christianity. It developed on a completely different continent. But the ethic, the underlying ethic was so the same as if I was looking at God himself spoken of from a completely different tradition. And this is amazing because, you know, Christianity tells you all this stuff is demonic. You should never you should never touch it with a 10-foot pole. Meanwhile, it doesn't recognize all the evil that is within Christianity, fear and manipulation, and it doesn't recognize the evil in itself, but it it creates a lot of fear that you can't you can't look outside the box, you know. But when I did, I don't know, I can't explain it. I don't know. May, maybe as the years go by, I'll be able to explain it. But Jesus came to reoccupy his place as the son of God. And uh, that was one of the very few things that, you know, survived. But I had to let it go in order to get it back. But right about the same time, something else delightful happened, too. And that I was introduced to the atonement theories of early Orthodox Christianity. And I learned, and th- this was so fun to learn this at such an advanced stage of this journey, you know, that really before the great schism and the start of Catholicism where we had a we had a thousand years of Christianity before all that. And they they did not have a Dante style hell. They they did not they were not built on substitutionary atonement. When I saw that it was like, Yay God, you know, I'm just oh <laughs> I'm just so excited that it, it helped me define things like there were things within Western Christendom, that's the expression of Christendom that hell got into. And then Calvin brought it during the Reformation into Protestantism. And so honestly, we didn't have very much of a Reformation to tell you the honest truth. 
and it sells and it builds big religions, whatever, but it really doesn't go back to the beginning. Doesn't Dante's hell doesn't go back to our roots. So this was tremendously validating. And I think coming to know God is an unfolding. It really isn't like I went outside of evangelicalism and into inclusionism. It's not that. Evangelicalism is an attempt to find a homogenized and set way of thinking. Once you're out of that, you shouldn't replace that with another set way of thinking. Right. You go from being somebody who's been indoctrinated to somebody who is a learner. Mm. And that's different. It's not the same. In your social media presence, you seem to detest partisan politics. Is that accurate? And if so, what led to that disdain? Oh, I hate talking about this. (laughs) (laughs) I hate talking about this because I, I, I feel like I'm not very good at talking about it. But what I feel like is is that recently, you know, with all the Trump stuff and everything, we got really polarized. The, well, the country got really polarized. I mean, I know we've always been politically polarized, but I've never experienced political polarization like this. And I think in the in Christendom, we did the same thing. We, we have right-wing politics drastically affecting right-wing Christianity. We have left-wing politics drastically affecting progressive Christianity. So, okay, so my deal is, like, if I could take everything we've just been talking about and applying it to politics, it it fits really good. Mankind cannot escape the fact that we are all spiritual creatures. And as long as we try to create utopia out of our own scripted moralities, we are going to be all locked in the same system. I see two sides trying to destroy each other and each side thinking that it is going to create utopia. And and what's really heartbreaking for me is I would love to see an into racism. I would love to see the inequity of the distribution of our wealth. I don't know whether I see the Robin Hood way of dealing with that as the way, but I am I'm a nature geek. I'm sad about the environment and but we we get like so emotional over oh we got to get this issue but we only get emotional over it when our man isn't in office i mean when our man is in office the issue is just the same as it always was but we don't get emotional over it you know what i mean so i see it being very hollow i in, in one way i'm very political because i am very passionate about the actual issues but i'm heartbroken because i feel I had some really um, kind of extreme leftist Christians that I was talking to. And I would say, oh, you know, I'm a little confused here. Do we want to actually end racism or do we just want to hate the people on the right? Mm. And I was instantly called a racist. So sad. So when you look at my life and see how recently it was that I escaped one fundamental situation, I certainly don't want to get back into another fundamental situation. And that's what I saw it as. Right. And and the interesting thing is we, we actually have not diverted to talking about politics because this is where Jesus shines his divinity in one of the most obvious and clear ways. Because he what he preaches, you you can't put Jesus on the left. For social justice, you can't put him on the right for morality. You have to reconcile the polarity. 
You have to reconcile and love your enemy. That is the only way to create utopia without collateral damage. And that is a mechanism. Left cannot blame the right. Right cannot blame the left. We all have to look inside of ourselves and we have to ask ourselves, am I getting off because I am on the side that's the deadly do right? Correct. Am I, is that where I'm finding my validity or am I actually doing anything for racism? You know what I mean? So that's where I just, I vote. I do vote. I hold my nose and I vote and I I try to vote uh, for the issues rather than being one side or the other you know, on this party or that party, I'm not going to go mark a ballot straight down for a party. And that's the best I can do. <laughs> you mentioned love heretic. We have a no politics rule. And I've really specified you, you, you can't talk about Jesus without talking about politics to some degree, because these, these same things were going on in his life. And he had a zealot turn him over to a religious empire who turned him over to a secular empire to be killed. They were all complicit. When Judas came up to him and said, oh, let's go take care of the poor. He said, hey, the poor you have with you always. And that's a shocking statement. But he only said that because he knew that Judas was more concerned with gaining power and getting Israel out of his captivity than he actually was for the poor. He knew that. And I think think that really we all ought to (laughs) think very carefully about that, you know, in our own lives. You mentioned the Love Heretic group on Facebook. What does it mean to be a Love Heretic? And why did you start that group? So Love Heretic is really a surprise because I was just ranting all these things on my personal page. And I just thought, you know, I bet all my friends are really tired of this. I think I'll start a group where I can just rant and I won't bother people. And it's kind of funny because I kept ranting on my personal page anyway. It didn't make any any difference. But (laughs) the idea of calling it Love Heretic was the irony that, like, when I was in evangelicals and people could commit horrible things, you know, and they could be forgiven and healed and everything. But but if you think, well, I think the cross finished the job (laughs) and that God isn't going to send anybody out. Oh my gosh, you're called a heretic and a false teacher and a Jezebel and a wolf. And they scapegoat you and they stand on, well, if you're in the public eye, they stand on stages with cameras at them and say things to the audience and make the audience gasp at how terrible and fallen and satanic you are. And so it is very ironic that you're a heretic because of the size of God's love. You're looking right at love does not keep an account of wrongs. Right there. That obliterates hell because hell is all about keeping account of wrongs. But it doesn't matter. You are scapegoated. And so that's where I got the title Love Heretic. I'm a heretic because of love. I love it. And I love being a part of that group. So many encouraging things take place in that group. I love it. It's it's really become such a place in it. It's really cool how much it's grown. There's thousands of people on there. And that, that was the last thing I expected. But it, it has become a wonderful place of fellowship. And it's very diverse. I really like that about it too. Wendy, before we go, what projects are you working on right now? And where can people engage with your work online? Probably Love Heretic. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably the best place. So that's, pr- I mean, I don't look at it as a project, but that's, you know, as far as other projects, I do a lot of projects that, that just are like things where we can make money because I think it's a good thing. To me, it's not really a good thing to make your money, you know, off the gospel too much. Right. It tends to affect how you how you see it and what you say. Absolutely. So I raise I raise livestock guardian dogs. I 
created a breed of livestock guardian dogs called Colorado Mountain Dog. And I do that. And I raise New Zealand Kiko goats and I paint. I do commissions. I do all kinds of stuff like that. Well, wonderful. I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. And I really hope that we can do it again in the future. Thanks. Thanks so much for inviting me, Jason. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.